Uh, one of the more underappreciated aspects of movie making is the ability to create a really powerful opening scene. The opening scene is crucial. It not only provides important information about character and setting and plot, it also sets the tone for the entire movie that follows. I want to share with you um, the opening scene of a powerful movie that I'm not sure many of you have seen or maybe even heard of. Um, it's one of, most critics say, one of the, the best movies of this young century so far, and I really, really agree. I think it's great. And I like to pick movies that everybody's familiar with because then you have, everybody can relate to it more easily, but sometimes I like to pick more obscure ones because then you it doesn't come with the baggage of knowing about that piece of art. And that's what I'm doing here. So it's called There Will Be Blood. Has anybody seen There Will Be Blood? It's a great movie. Um, it's by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, as uh, Daniel Plainview is the main character, a power-hungry oil baron in the turn-of-the-century American Southwest, except we don't know that yet. The film begins with the title card, There Will Be Blood, um, in this old-timey font against a black screen. And then it cuts to a shot of the southwestern desert. This This shot behind me here is from that movie. And... As it shows these the scrubland, there's this ominous swell of strings. And then it cuts to a man chipping away with a pickaxe deep in a hole surrounded by rock, um, just swinging this pickaxe against stone, seemingly going nowhere, but refusing to slow down. He stops to spit on a rock to see what he's got. He sharpens his pickaxe in the dark. He slings his shotgun over his back and crawls out of the hole with this makeshift ladder. It's toilsome work is the image you get. Next, we see him crouching beside a, a meager campfire. His scraggly tent, you see it pinned down by rocks, flapping in the breeze. Um, while in the background, lightning flashes, though he pays it no mind. He doesn't even blink. He's pondering. We find out that it's the year 1898. Then he's in the hole again, though his methods have improved. He lights a stick of dynamite. He's got dynamite now. Um, then climbs out and uses this crude pulley system to lift his gear up, but there's a problem. The dynamite goes off before he can get all of his gear up the hole, which could prove disastrous if he lose all, all of his gear, obviously. And so he slowly lowers himself back down into the hole, but as he's doing that, a board snaps and he plummets like two stories down the hole uh, to unforgiving stone bottom. The screen darkens for a moment. Is he dead? As he gasps, gasps back into consciousness, he, he breathlessly speaks the first words of the movie over four and a half minutes in. The first words of the movie are him just gasping, no. He's 30 feet down the hole. His leg is broken, a situation that would condemn most men to death, but not this man. Before dragging his broken self out of the hole, he picks up a rock and inspects it, muttering a barely heard, there she is. Silver. He's found silver in this mine. As we see him, so he's at the bottom of this hole. He's in terrible pain, and he needs to know if he found what he was looking for. Just uh, As we see him gingerly, painstakingly inch his way up the ladder and then we see him kind of crawl his way on the back past those same mountains you saw to the land claims office which is miles away and as as he's crawling through the desert the, the camera pans back up to the mountains and we have the same uh, swell of strings so it's bookended that's how you know the scene's done it's bookended by this this ominous sound of strings and the scene is done five minutes the scene is five minutes bookended by these ominous strings and the only other sounds you hear are the clink of pickaxe against stone the, the explosion of dynamite, the rumble of thunder, and a few solemn words spoken first in despair and then in defiant victory at the bottom of a hard scrabble pit. 
But in those five minutes, you learn everything you need to know about the fictional Daniel Plainview. He is driven almost to the point of mania to succeed. He will not allow failure or suffering to halt him in his, un, in his relentless pursuit of the success that he feels he, he needs to earn. He is self-made, fiercely independent, untrusting, unloving, and uncompromising. His natural environment is a dark pit. That's where we first find him in, and his whole life feels like one dark pit after another, surrounded by stone. And all of this character and plot development happens in just five minutes with no words. It is beautiful and jarring. That scene is a masterpiece like the whole rest of the movie. It's important to open any work of art with something that catches the eye or ear, something that sets the stage for everything that will follow, something that forces us to pay attention to the message in the words or images that are being communicated to us. There Will Be Blood, the movie, accomplishes this through evocative images that capture the grim determination of its central character. We really get a sense of who this guy is. He won't give up. It is mostly soundless and mostly bleak, but it contains multitudes of information for those paying attention. Even the name of the movie is an act of foreshadowing. You you would think it would be called There Will Be Oil. It's not. We see plenty of injury and abuse in the film, but no no, no actual blood until the final iconic scene. I drink your milkshake, to those of you who've seen it. It's a, a weird reference, but it's a brilliant movie. But enough of me heaping praise on, on a Hollywood movie, praiseworthy though it may be. Let's talk about the opening scene with something much more beautiful and much more jarring, Paul's letter to the Philippians. But we talked last week in the introduction to the series about how Philippians is a friendship letter. And that's a very specific genre of letter writing with a very distinct outline that was followed by everyone in the Roman Empire. You knew when you were reading a friendship letter because there was a form to it. Kind of like you know when you're reading a letter of reference because it begins with, to whom it may concern. I know this about so-and-so person. Please give them a job. There's a form to the friendship letter. They always, always started with this. From so-and-so to so-and-so, greetings. It's very simple, just like letters today begin with, Dear so-and-so, and then you go into it. A friendship letter always began with that. We have dozens of, of, dozens of examples of non-Christian friendship letters written in Egypt and Rome and throughout the empire. There are even a few examples of in Scripture itself. In the book of Acts, there's two. In chapter 15 of Acts, the Jerusalem Council happens, and they write their proposals to, the, the, to be spread around the churches, and it begins with, to the churches, blah, 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 or from blah, 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 to the churches and blah, 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 greetings. And then later in chapter 23, a Roman military officer is holding Paul in custody in Jerusalem, and he writes to to Governor Felix, and the letter begins from Claudius to Felix, greetings. That's how all the letters of the time started. They would then often invoke the name of their gods and mention how they've been praying for the person. It's, It's very formulaic is what I'm saying. And Paul has all of those formulaic elements in his opening to his letter. He is very much following the expected form of the day, except he also deviates from that form in meaningful ways, and it's in the deviations that we see the heart of Paul. Like Paul Thomas Anderson, directing There Will Be Blood, the Apostle Paul sets the scene for his readers in small, specific, and powerful ways, drawing us into this fascinating masterpiece through through the expertly sly use of words. There will be blood draws power in words by mostly keeping words from us. It's just what you see. There's no dialogue, and that's very jarring. But Philippians draws power in words 
that deviate from the expected script. They, they deviate from what is expected, and there's power in, in how Paul deviates. But both masterpieces do a fabulous job of laying out our expectations for the entire rest of the body of work that follows. There's three parts to Paul's introduction, as I mentioned. The greeting is verses 1 to 2. There's a prayer of thanksgiving in verses 3 to 8 and a prayer of intercession in verses 9 to 11. We're only going to look at the first two verses, believe it or not, just the greeting, uh, which is classic Chris Lance. I know I promise we won't do just two verses every time. We won't. Next week we'll do the whole rest of the intro, hopefully. But, uh, yeah, we're going to do two verses today. Um, so sorry about that. But there's a reason. Uh, there's, 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 there's things about this greeting that I don't want us to skip over. In fact, many scholars think that what Paul does in his opening greetings here and throughout the body of his work is nothing short of revolutionary, that he changed how letters were written for all time. If friendship letters have a distinct formula that Paul follows, he also can't help but take something as simple and formulaic as the greeting in a letter, one sentence, and infuse it with the richness of the gospel that he is giving his life for. So here it is, Philippians 1, 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, so that's the from, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. And then the greetings is an expanded form. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How could Chris possibly derive an entire sermon from that? Watch me! Remember how I said that these letters always start with from so-and-so to so-and-so greeting? Well, there it is. You see it here. Except Paul adds some flourishes that infuse it with meaning. I want to highlight four themes that Paul infuses into, into a standard formulaic greeting to fill it with meaning, anticipating the content of the letter that follows. And these four are humility, unity, sanctity, and the gospel. So all four of these things, Paul takes something very formulaic and takes these four things, which will become themes that dominate the whole rest of the letter, and he, he, he crams them in, in into this one sentence in, in really subtle but powerful ways. Like there will be blood, really subtle, really just getting a, a glimpse of things, of what you can expect. That's what's happening here. We're getting a glimpse of things. They're very subtle, but they're powerful. And I wanted to share them with you. So the first is humility. It's true that most people, um, many people, if not most people, in the ancient world used scribes. So Paul's not doing the actual writing on papyrus. He has a scribe. Last week I mentioned a scribe was probably Luke. I'm wrong. It was probably Timothy because Timothy is mentioned here by name. However, none of them would ever mention, none of the other writers who use a scribe would ever mention the name of the scribe in the greeting. It would be their name and their name alone. Certainly not someone with the lofty title of apostle, which was the highest position you could hold in the church at that time and even still. An apostle is someone who is commissioned directly by Jesus to go out and spread the, the gospel message. So that's the 12 disciples, including the replacement disciple, and Paul. Really, I don't, I don't know if there are any, if there's anybody else who counts as an apostle. So it's a very elite office. I, I mean, as far as we would consider positions of power. And that's what's been bestowed on Paul. And in, Nearly every one of Paul's letters, he begins by signifying his apostolic authority, his authority as an apostle. Not in a boastful way, not in a combative way. Not, hey, I'm an apostle, so listen up. He doesn't do that. 
But he definitely name drops his apostleship in a, in a sort of matter-of-fact way that sets the stage for his arguments against heresy or his outlining of basic theology. He's saying, hey, I'm Paul, the apostle. Here's some things you need to know. But not here. Paul makes no claims to his apostleship. And he puts Timothy on equal authoritative grounds as himself. It begins with just from Paul and Timothy. It doesn't say from the Apostle Paul and his protege Timothy, even though that's exactly what their relationship is. Timothy has never met the person of Jesus, meaning Timothy can never claim to be an apostle. Only the 12 disciples and Paul could claim that title. But Paul puts that title aside and instead joins with Timothy under their shared title, a title that supersedes any other human title, even to titles bestowed by Jesus himself. Paul calls himself and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus. It says servants here. The NIV translated that word to servants, which is a softer, gentler word. But it's a poor translation. The word is doulos. That word means slave, like household, purchased, forced to do whatever you want them to do, slave. Paul wants us to feel the weight of that word, slave. That's an ugly word for us now, as it should be. Terrible acts of injustice and cruelty and dehumanization were carried out by those who used that word and those who were forced into that word. Back then, it wasn't, I mean, it was a little better than when we think of American slavery, but not a whole lot better. Slaves were property and were treated as property. If they rebelled in any way, you could kill them with no consequences. If you didn't like how hard they were threshing the wheat, you could thresh them to no consequences. To be a slave was inhumane. But Paul's not naive of those connotations when he uses the word doulos, when he uses the word slave. He knew and befriended many slaves. The church was filled with slaves who I'm sure shared with Paul stories of terrible treatment. So he's not naive to what the word slave means, but he still chose the phrase slaves of Christ Jesus specifically. Why? Because as we'll see in the prayers to come, which we'll study next week, and in the whole content of the entire letter, Paul's writing to the Philippians for two purposes. One, to express his thanks to them for the gift that they brought him and the encouragement they offered. And two, to compel them to lay down selfish arguments in order to bring glory to Jesus alone. He is one friend, writing to other friends, trying to get them to be more selfless. And so he leads by example. He refuses to use his lofty title of apostle and instead uses a phrase loaded with humility and submission. Slave of Christ Jesus. That word slave has the same connotations then as it does now. Except when you have a good master, then it is an honor and a privilege to be a slave. When he says slave of Christ Jesus, that means conscripted into, purchased is a better word, purchased into a new, purchased by a new owner to a new life. And this owner has a will that you must follow whether you like it or not. But the good news is, with this master, his will is, is absolutely beneficial. His will is the life that all of us slaves should be living anyway. It's a beautiful life being a slave to a good master like Jesus. And so it's a loaded word, but it, it conveys the humility and the submission that he uses as a theme throughout the letter. He equates himself with an underling. Timothy is an underling. Paul would never say that, but he is. He doesn't have the title that Paul has or the authority that Paul has. But Paul equates himself with an underling and, and demonstrates that there's more than just the titles humans give us. There's a greater 
office, and that is office of being a slave to Christ Jesus, being owned by Jesus to do his will. It's a very humbling thing for Paul to do, and he's quite happy to do it. Number two, the second element of this greeting. So we had humility, now we have unity. The squabbling in Philippi is threatening to undermine their witness for the gospel of Jesus. The key to overcoming this is unity. Paul demonstrates this unity by equating himself with Timothy in, in this, this humbling way, as, as I've already mentioned. But just like Paul Thomas Anderson using subtle visual cues to convey character and theme in the opening of There Will Be Blood, Paul uses subtle written clues to demonstrate his character to his friends in Philippi and his deeper themes for the letter of the friendship letter that he is writing. So it begins with an easy-to-overlook three-letter word, all, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. That's an easy word to overlook. Paul's writing to all of God's people. He has heard from uh, Epaphroditus that two women, leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, are squabbling, as it says in chapter 4, but he refuses to take sides with either of those leaders. Instead, he is writing to command all the Philippines. He is writing to teach all the Philippines. He is writing to correct all the Philippians. The fact that all the Philippians are said to be in Christ Jesus in verse 1 highlights the source of that unity and the purpose of that unity. And that is the glorious love of Christ Jesus. That's where the unity comes from. That's what the unity is for, for the glory of Jesus. Jesus is what unifies us, and that unity is for all of us. And it is stronger than any divisions or disagreements. The thing that bonds us together is stronger than anything that could potentially divide us. And that's true as I try to look each one of you in the eye. That is absolutely true for not just this church, but this church to that church, and the churches all together. The thing that unites us needs to be stronger than the things that divide us. But notice, sorry, notice how he does single out some leadership in the church. He writes, I'll go back to it again, together with the overseers and deacons. Um, I could go into what those terms mean. They're basically elders, formal, or not for, semi-formal forms of leadership in the early church, caretakers of the church. Um, I'm not going to go into it too much. It's not that important for our purposes here. But doesn't mentioning them specifically undermine the equality that he's, he's seemingly building up in these two verses? He says to all the people, and then he singles out some special leaders. Doesn't that undermine the unity that he's trying to, to, to communicate here? Well, not exactly. I don't think so. Instead, by refusing his own apostolic title, while also specifically mentioning their own dignified title as overseers and deacons, Paul's doing exactly what he will soon instruct the Philippians in chapter 2. Look after the interests of others while refusing your own rights. Look after the interests of others. So if these people have this title of respect and honor, use it. That They're worthy of it. But he will not claim that for himself. He'll deny that for himself. He is modeling for them in real time what he wants to communicate to them. Think of others as greater than yourself. Respectful titles for others, no title for yourself. This denial of self and respect for others fosters unity. If I go around forcing you guys to call me Reverend Lance, which I could, by the way, I'm a reverend because I'm ordained in the church. Very fancy of me. I could force you to call me that. But how pathetic would that be? How proud and haughty I would lose hundreds of points, just like Dale did during communion message. 
if I forced you to call me by my title, when people call me Pastor Chris or Pastor Lance, that makes me uncomfortable. Uh, if they do it willingly, then that's one thing. But I would never force anyone to call me by a title. If, however, Mr. Dr. Ron Fraser was here, I take great pleasure in calling him Dr. Ron. Because that's a title that he worked for for years and years and years. And he is worthy of that title. His life and his character backs up the title of Doctorate of Theology or whatever it is. Doctor of, I forget what the, the official title is. He's a man worthy of that title. And I, I am happy to call him by that title. Even though every time I do, he kind of chuckles and waves me off and says, no, just Ron's fine. Because he's doing the same thing. It's beautiful that it creates unity between brothers and sisters in the family if you don't cling to what you deserve. If you lay it down and instead ascribe to other people what they deserve. It lets people know that you care about them and value them. And that's what Paul is modeling here. He's writing to all the Philippians, not just the quarreling ones. So when he says good things about them, that's for all of them. When he corrects them, that's for all of them. That word all is crucially important. But then he models it by being selfless. That selflessness creates unity. Number three. So we've got humility, we've got unity, and we've got sanctity. Sanctity. That's kind of a fancy Christianese word. I had to look up what it means when I used it. So allow me to explain Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more Christ-like after we are saved. The word saint and sanctification, sanctity, all have the same root word. It means to be made holy. That's all it means, to be made holy. And that word holiness is kind of a tough word to pin down. It just means set apart, special, for special service. But sanctity means we are becoming more and more like our Lord. The word allows for our fallen human nature. It doesn't say you are fully sanctified right now once you believe in Jesus. It's a process. So it allows for mistakes and, and our sinfulness, while also hinting at the Spirit's work within us, shaping us to become reflections of our Lord Jesus. All of this, I think, we see in the title that Paul ascribes to the Philippians in verse 1. Though they are slaves to Jesus, he calls himself and Timothy slaves to Jesus, but he doesn't use that same title of the people he's writing to. He uses a much more honorific title. He calls them saints. Your translation may say holy people. Let's go back to that. To all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. But the word is saints, hegios in the Greek. Though we are slaves, we are also saints. And saints is another loaded word in our culture. We tend to think of saints as people who are especially virtuous. Something like heroes of the faith. So in other tr Christian traditions, there are people who have been sainted, and they are people who showed exemplary service to Jesus, and, and they're people that get prayed to, that because they were so exemplary in life, maybe they're exemplary in death, and maybe they will hear our prayers and present them to Jesus for us. That, that idea of sainthood, it's sort of like, wow, Dale shoveled the whole church in the middle of a blizzard. What a saint. 500 points. <laughs> wow. That church gave this family a whole turkey dinner for Christmas. What a, what a bunch of saints. Or Chris Lance kept his sermon under 45 minutes. What a real saint. Uh, maybe. But when we use the word saint to describe an especially good person, we are not using the word saint in a biblical sense. The, the word saint is far from that definition in Scripture. In Scripture, anyone who has accepted the salvation of Jesus is a saint. It's that, it's that simple. 
Anyone who accepts salvation is a saint. Some saints are incredibly faulty and messed up. Yodia and Syntyche in this letter will be singled out for their mistakes, but they are saints no different than Paul and Timothy. There's not a level of sainthood. There's not, you don't get to tier eight sainthood in the church. If you believe, you become a saint. Any commoner who belongs to Jesus is a saint. That's you and I. We are called by Jesus to be separate from this corrupt and fallen world. Twisted and depraved generation is the phrase he uses in the book of Philippians. We are called by Jesus to be separate from this world in order to be glorious slaves to our gracious and compassionate master. We are a people set apart. It's a beautiful title. It's loaded with Old Testament meaning of of purpose and mission and, and separateness. But it's one that needs to be combined with the, the, the aforementioned humility and unity. To call us saints is a unifying term because we're all in it together. It's also a humbling term. Paul is just as much a saint. The Paul, the apostle, is just as much a saint as me, who is nobody special. So it's a unifying thing. It's a humbling thing. Therefore, all the Philippians are saints, even those saints whose witness is being diluted by selfish arguments. Paul will spend much of his letter exhorting these saints to demonstrate more saint-like behavior. So if we are set apart, then there's a responsibility, don't you think? That if we are set apart to respond as people who are set apart, to live lives that are separate and different and holy. That's not what makes us saints, but that is the consequence of becoming a saint. You start to live a life that is more saintly, more sanctified, closer to Jesus. Um, so we'll spend much of this letter trying to get the Philippians to be more saint-like in their behavior. And that just means any behavior that looks more like Jesus. But first, he needs the Philippians to recognize their identity in Jesus. And that is that they are all saints together, called out from this temporary empire to join a kingdom with no ending and to become more and more like their king. That is sanctity. Sinners becoming saints and becoming more and more like Jesus. Which brings us to our last point of the morning, the gospel message. Everything Paul writes in the end comes down to the gospel message. Everything, anything you read in the Bible comes down to the gospel message, which is from Christ and for Christ and about Christ. The gospel is Jesus. And Paul actually kind of uses them synonymously. But verse 2 does a wonderful job of summarizing the gospel succinctly and sweetly when he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And it all begins with a kind of a play on words. So here's your Greek. I've given you a few Greek word nerd moments. Here's an extended Greek word nerd moment. As I said about a hundred times already, the formula for the greetings of these friendly letters is from so-and-so to so-and-so. Then what? Greetings. And the Greek word for greetings that is typically used in this, in this formula is, I don't really know how to pronounce this, but karen. Karen. The root word of karen or Karen, is charis. Anybody know what the Greek word charis means? Yeah. Close. Very close, in fact. Tied together very closely. Grace. So gift and grace in Greek are very closely tied. So you're not wrong, Dave. But we, when we see charis in the Bible, we translate that as grace. So Paul takes the standard word used in letter greetings throughout the Greek-speaking world and twists it to use it to proclaim Jesus. It's not just not just greetings, and the word also means rejoice, but take the root of that word and expand it out to show Jesus, grace. 
Grace is what is gifted to us. So there's that connection, Dave. Dave said charis means gift, and that's because grace is a gift. Um, the, the charismatic gifts are gifts given to us to further to further our ministry. So gift and grace are very closely tied. But grace is what is gifted to us from God the Father, as represented in the love and sacrifice of his son, Jesus. Grace is the basis of the gospel. So he begins his letter, his greetings isn't greetings, it's grace. But not just grace. Paul adds the traditional Jewish greeting of peace, or in Hebrew, shalom. It's grace and peace, which we examined several weeks ago in our Advent series. Peace, that sense of peace just means life as it is intended to be. The fulfillment of living life as it's supposed to be lived. That's what he means by peace. So grace and peace. In fact, commentators think that Paul mentions grace and peace in this order to highlight the cause and effect of the gospel message. Because of grace, we can have peace. So it's like grace, dot, 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 and peace to you, Philippians. Because of grace, we can have peace. Both are gifts from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's basically as simple as the gospel could get before you before you reduce it to irrelevance. That's about as simple as, as the gospel can get before it gets too simple. You start losing important things. But that's the root of the gospel. Grace and peace to you as a gift from God your Father, which was enabled and acted by the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Everything Paul writes is centered on the gospel, even a toss-away greeting at the start of a letter. It's all gospel, everything for Paul. Wherever he can sneak the gospel in, he will do it. He's really good at it. As Gordon Fee writes, the key to life in Christ in whatever Philippi Philippi we find ourselves in, our Philippi happens to be Clyde, Alberta. And so the key to life in Christ, in Clyde, lies first of all in our common experience of grace and peace from God our Father, provided by Christ our Lord. That's the gospel. From this point on, Paul will elaborate further on the meaning and nature of the gospel message. But like a glimpse of Daniel Plainview chipping away in a rocky pit, we get an early indicator of Paul's message even from the very first words. So those are the hidden elements that Paul stuffs into his greeting, themes that will recur throughout Philippians. Humility, unity, sanctity, and the gospel message. But in all of this, you may be thinking, wow, Chris, that's really a stretch. How could Paul possibly intend all of that in just two little verses, one sentence? How could he possibly intend all of that in one sentence? Well, that's the genius of Paul. He takes the equivalent of our, dear Mr. Lance, how are you? This very formulaic, meaning nothing intro to a letter. He takes that and he twists it and he infuses it with the gospel and with all these other themes and purposes. And we know he is doing it intentionally because he's the only person in the entire Roman world that we know of that did this. Everybody else followed that formula to the letter, but not Paul. He deviates from it. And it's in those deviations that we see his heart and his purpose and his message. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can't help but infuse this beautiful purpose and meaning into every single word he chooses. He takes the formula of a simple greeting and, like a master filmmaker carefully orchestrating his opening scene, he fills it with all kinds of messages, (laughs) themes, both subtle and obvious, about the message that will follow. So, in this case, humility, unity, sanctity, and the gospel. We are all his humble, submissive slaves, just as we are all his holy, sanctified saints. And there is great power in the unity of that word, all. So I guess this is, this is what does this mean for us? 
that we are all his slaves, we are all his saints, and there's, there's power in the unity and humility that come with those terms. We are all bound together in Jesus, no matter our gender, no matter our bank statement, no matter our political beliefs, no matter our past mistakes, no matter our current struggles and sin, no matter what our earthly titles may be, we are all in this together. Those are those things that I just mentioned, that list, those are things that we can squabble about, but those squabbles have to be set aside for the sake of the gospel message. There is power in the word all. Though the Philippian church had leaders, overseers and deacons and maybe pastors, they were also led by an apostle who refused to proclaim his much loftier title. Paul refused to be to, to throw the weight of his apostleship around. But ultimately, they were led not by Paul. They were led by a Lord who chose to forsake an even greater title than apostle. He gave up the title of God of creation. He gave that up in order to come to us and gift each one of us, all, there's that word, all of us, his saints and slaves, with grace and peace. We are led by that same Lord. It can be easy to overlook the opening scene even if it's just one sentence, two verses. It can be easy to overlook that. But Paul fills his scene-setting words with beautiful purpose, which anticipate the rest of the masterpiece to come. Certainly anticipates next week when we look at his prayers for the Philippians. You will see these things come up over and over. I assure you, we will not be going through Philippians two verses at a time. So get out there, saints and slaves, and keep relentlessly digging for silver until you shatter your leg in a dynamite... Sorry, no, wait. Keep pursuing and proclaiming the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we are all your saints, that we are all your slaves, that you call us into a life filled with purpose and meaning, that you call us to be sanctified, to be made more and more like you. And I pray that we would respond appropriately, that we would take this life that you gift with us and take it to the world, take you to the world fearlessly and courageously and boldly. Thank you for the these opening words of Paul. I pray that we would respond with a similar humility, a similar unity, a similar sanctity, and that we too would put the gospel above all things. pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Or Chris Lance kept his sermon under 45 minutes. What a real saint. You may be thinking... Wow, Chris, that's really a stretch.